The sermon text today comes from Genesis chapter 1. Pastor Rick told me that he's never preached from this text. So, um, <laughs> Typically when pastors go through this text, this is a part of a series, but I'm hoping that we can uh, draw out some implications of the first few verses of Genesis as it relates to the nature of God. Let's look there, Genesis 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Please be seated. Father, you say in Psalm 36, 9, in your light we see light. Open our eyes and our hearts to receive your word. Help us to open your scriptures and see you for who you really are, not merely who we want you to be. Sanctify us by your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. About 10 years ago, a prominent evangelical pastor attended a revival being held at a well-known megachurch. The pastor was increasingly disturbed as the other speakers stressed living prosperous and victorious lives. Their sermons had much to say about the earthly benefits of following Christ, but they said very little about Christian suffering the glory of God. When it was time for the pastor to descend the pulpit, he did so to their cheering, but the instant he got up there, he warned them, what I have to tell you is going to sting. As he began to preach, the message of the glory of God filled the room, and people fell silent. The climax of that sermon was the punchline, you're not David, and the Bible's not about you. And in the aftermath, they actually pulled the sermon off of the Revival website. But it began to circulate online, and soon the, the sermon developed its own meme culture. Video clips from this mic drop moment got tens of thousands of views. It inspired Christian songs, and eventually I came across it myself. The idea that the Bible is about God more than it's about me is a formative thought. We, we have a tendency to identify ourselves with the main characters in the Bible, and it's easy for us to see ourselves in a text of Scripture more than what we see what is revealed about God. Just as the story of David and Goliath is first and foremost about David as a type of Christ, the record of creation in Genesis 1 is primarily a revelation of the attributes of God. This is what I want you to take away from this morning. God is the main character in creation and we're called to worship him. What we read in these first few verses of the Bible, the foundation of history, it's all about what God has done. It's the foundation of all God's revelation. <coughs> all revelation is rooted in creation. This is the basis for all anthropology, the study of man, or soteriology, the study of salvation, even covenant theology. Every ology finds their beginning in the doctrine of God. As creator. And for our study of Genesis, I want to focus on three attributes of God that we especially see in the text. 
We use alliteration to help us remember them. Three Ps. In creation, we see God's perpetuity, power, and perfection. First, God is perpetually self-existent. Perpetuity. Perpetuity refers to an object whose duration is without end. For example, when I went to RTS for a few weeks of classes this summer, I asked my professor, well, how does a seminary actually pay for everything? Part of the answer, in addition to student tuition, is endowments or donations that are designed as continual investments, where the income from that investment perpetually provides the institution. The revenue from those endowments exists in perpetuity. There is no end to it. And in fact, some of the oldest universities in our country, we think of Harvard and Yale, the majority of their income actually comes from those endowments in perpetuity. But even those funds had a beginning. And someday, banks, countries will collapse. Someday they will run out. We can think of all, all sorts of other human examples of perpetuity and things that are seemingly endless, but none of them are truly endless. Only God has no beginning and no end. There's nothing in all creation that comes even close to that. The more technical term for the eternal self-existence of God is aseity. And I want to make four observations about the perpetuity or aseity of God. The first is that God existed before anything else. Before anything else, God. That's the first sentence of Genesis. It clues us in. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This was the beginning of everything. Before this moment, there was nothing apart from God. No angels, no people, other gods or the devil. Not even time. You might ask, how do we get all that from verse 1? Well, in Hebrew, the sentence reads backwards. The earth and heavens God created in the beginning and the emphasis is on the thing that was created in the beginning, the heavens and the earth. In Hebrew, it's a rhetorical device. They don't have a word for the universe. So Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is in effect telling us, from the lowest to the loftiest places, God made everything that exists in the beginning. Verse 1 tells us that God's first creative decree was to establish the universe. As the Nicene Creed puts it, God created all that is, both seen and unseen. There was nothing else before him. And this is the starting point of the Christian faith. Before anything else, God was. This is the same God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush and declared, I am. And this verse doesn't just establish the foundation of our doctrine of God. It directly rejects the starting point of other religions. Ancient polytheistic faiths understood the universe to begin with a pantheon of gods. And Genesis 1 makes a complete break with this thinking. There were no other gods. There was no cosmic conflict between other deities from which the universe was formed. Only there was God in the beginning. And to put it another way, when we look at verse 1, heavens and earth describes everything that is not God. The second aspect of God's aseity, or perpetual self-existence, is that God doesn't depend on anyone or anything else. 
one trend we see in modern praise music is to so often emphasize the nearness and friendship of God that we can hardly conceive of God apart from us. Some songs speak of God's passion for his people with such an intensity that we lose sight of his transcendence. When I was in college, I I came across this little book called The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. And you know what the first chapter was? The solitariness of God. In an age where broad evangelical Christians seem to be increasingly speaking of deep yearning for God and his reckless love, there's hardly a word that flies more in the face of that than the solitariness of God. But this is an important point in Genesis 1. The doctrine of transcendence comes before the doctrine of God's imminence. Even when there was no creature, no matter, no spiritual beings even, God existed. There was a time when angels or humans were not praising him, and he was altogether wonderful. There was no outside force acting upon God compelling him to make the universe. There couldn't have been because there was nothing else. And even if God chose not to create, he would still be glorified and satisfied in himself. Paul puts it this way in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That was an evangelistic sermon, mind you. The doctrine of God's self-existence isn't just for intellectuals. It's the starting point for Paul and for all of Scripture of the gospel. As Matthew Barrett puts it, the gospel depends on a God who does not depend on you. Imagine the catastrophic consequences of God truly dependent on you. Have you ever let him down? If God really needed you, for him to experience fulfillment and joy, then he would have been unfulfilled in the beginning from all eternity past. He'd be unfulfilled now as people turn their backs on him and your sin would be the greatest letdown of all time. God would no longer be God. He would be just as weak and in need of saving as we are. That's the kind of God we might pray for, but not to. If God's greatness comes from us, then he is less than something great himself. But if God is free from the sin that plagues us, if all life and goodness exists in himself, then we can trust that he never changes and that his purposes will surely come to pass. It really is good news that God doesn't depend on anything else. The third thing that we see about God's self-existence is the oneness of God. You see, God remains separate and distinct from his creation. From the outset, the Bible not only rejects the polytheistic claim of multiple gods, but it rejects pantheism, or the idea that God is everything. This is common in New Age thought, but never embraced in Scripture. Augustine has a wonderful line about the relationship between the creation and the creator in his confessions. He says this, What is my God? I put my question to the earth, and it answered, I am not God. And all things on earth answered the same. 
I asked the sea, the chasms of the deep, and the winds that blow, and all that lives in the air. I asked the sun, the sky, the moon, and the stars, and they all told me, we are not your God. Seek what is above us. God is he who made us. Creation is distinct from the Creator, and it's designed to point us to Him, as the psalmist so skillfully puts in chapter, uh, book 19. God is one. Fourth and finally, the, the final quality of God's aseity or self-existence that we, that we see in Genesis 1 is that God is three in one. Now some people will point to how the word in Genesis 1, Elohim, is plural in its form. They say, ah, this can't be talking about multiple gods, so it must be a reference to the Trinity. But I'm not so sure this is a clear reference to the Trinity. In ancient Hebrew, the plural form for God's name is simply a sign of honor in many cases. The word can be used to describe a single object that possesses such majestic qualities that the plural form is used. So Calvin and numerous other contemporary Reformed theologians agree that there's little definitive proof that Genesis 1.1 clearly refers to the Trinity simply by the name for God. However, verse 26 declares that God said, let us make man, let us make man. And that's much more likely to be regarded as a reference to the Trinity. But even in verses 1 through 5, we do see an important evidence for the triune nature of God at work. The Father is that member of the Godhead often seen in reference to creation. Just one example is Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, where he says there's one God, the Father, from whom all things are and for whom we exist. So we might say the Father is the sort of architect of creation. He is especially depicted in Scripture in connection with God's foreknowledge, his decrees and providence. But verse 2 clearly alludes to another member of the Godhead. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We could translate the word for spirit as wind, and some scholars do. But in each one, every one, the 15 other times this phrase is mentioned in the Old Testament, it always refers to a spirit of God and never the wind. The Holy Spirit, I want you to see, was active and present and involved in God's creative work from the beginning. So if we were to call the Father the architect, we might say that the Spirit is especially concerned without, with carrying the Father's plans out by giving life. The Father is the architect, the Spirit gives life. And the Son of God may seem less obvious in the text, but I'm amazed as I study Genesis how many theologians consistently argue for the presence of Christ from the very beginning. It's probably because the Apostle John did it in John 1, and in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. John argues that Jesus was not only present, but all things were made through him. Every attribute of God is shared by every member of the Trinity. We have to see this. The creation in Genesis 1 doesn't occur absent any members of the Trinity. God is not divided. Certain persons of the Trinity are keen to operate in particular ways. But even though the Father is more often associated with creation, John is able to say all things were made through Christ. And Paul goes a step further. What we read in Colossians 1, all things hold together in Christ. Even though the Spirit 
is more often associated with giving life and sustaining it. In both Genesis 1 and John 1, the Son is seen as giving the light of God's revelation. Father is the mighty planner. The Spirit is giving life and the Son is giving light. The Word expresses the will of God. Christ reveals the will of the Father. The Son is never created. He exists co-eternally with the Father and the Spirit. And it's through the work of the Spirit that the Word gives life. The Dutch Reformed theologian Gerhardus Voss put it this way, As being is from the Father, and life from the Spirit, so thought or revelation is from the Word. So what do we make of this doctrine of the saity or perpetuity of God? Well, we should be amazed. He is the only eternally existent being. Aren't you thankful that you worship a God that doesn't depend on you? Who has all glory in himself and who isn't he? The triune God is the one we should come to in our moments of need. Think of a baby's dependence on their parents. There is no greater disparity and distance between the eternally self-existent God and us. And yet, he treats us so tenderly as a father. Jesus tells us that if we, unless we become like children, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Does this doctrine inspire a childlike faith in your heart? Well, now that we've looked at the perpetuity of God, let's turn our attention again to the text and look at God's power in the rest of verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. God's power is unmistakable in how he creates. He creates out of nothing. We said earlier that there was nothing beside God, and we need to consider the implications of this. Other ancient religions say that God's created the universe through cosmic conflict. Modern humanists say that there was a Big Bang where the universe just created itself. Genesis rejects either of these possibilities. There was no pre-existent matter. There was only God. And his method for creating is in stark contrast to the chaos of other theories. At the outset, following his initial bringing forth of the universe into existence in verse 1, God looks at the earth in verse 2, and the earth is described as formless and void. Calvin termed this confused emptiness. The emphasis is that there was unordered space, not, not disordered. But there was a lack of order. It's not as if a bomb went off, everything was out of control, and God was frantically trying to bring it all together. This was a mighty, methodical process where God brought life into empty, uninhabited space. And just imagine for a moment what that would have been like. Imagine if we could have looked at this creative work. Imagine if you were stranded on a raft in the middle of the ocean in a dark and misty night. That was the state of the world. There was nothing there. Doug Kelly, a former professor at RTS Charlotte, uh, calls this the miracle of miracles. The sheer lordship of God shines nowhere more brightly, Kelly says, than God's creation of all things out of nothing. The distance between being 
and non-being is infinite and God transcends it. Think about that. In our translation for let there be light, we have four words. But in Hebrew, there are only two. Be light. No other being can create in this way. The Hebrew word in Genesis bears witness to this fact. That word is never used for any creative activity other than that of God. All that we make is what we might call a secondary creation. Whatever we do, and when we do create lots of things, but all of it depends on God's previous work. We can never make something out of nothing. As the Puritan Thomas Watson puts it, all the world cannot make a fly. We can't bring into existence even the tiniest, most inconsequential household pest. God simply speaks all things into existence. God also creates freely. The exercise of his power is not out of obligation or subject to any coercion. God takes in what takes a man a lifetime and brings it to pass in a millisecond. The Dutch reformer Wilhelmus de Brockel says, By virtue of absolute sovereignty, God creates the world, and he could have also refrained from doing so. He could have created prior to 5,700 years ago, at a later date, or could have brought forth several worlds. But he only made this one world, and brought it forth at the precise moment according to his perfect decree. final element of God's power is displayed in how he creates intimately. I said that transcendence precedes the doctrine of the eminence of God, but we do see the intimacy of God here even in Genesis 1. The hovering of the Spirit. The Spirit hovered over the face of the waters, verse 2. That's the same language that describes elsewhere in Scripture an eagle hovering protectively over his young. The Spirit of God in Scripture, other places, is described as a guarantor of our inheritance. Here he guarantees that all God's creation will flourish. The intimacy of God's power is seen in how he names his creation. Look at verse 5. He calls the light day, the darkness night. He goes on to name the rest of creation, later delegates the naming of the creatures to, to man. And for God, or for man, to create a name is to give it meaning. Things take on identities from their names. So it reflects authority. If you have the power to name something or someone, it means you're entitled to authority over that person or thing. Maybe you've heard before about one of the more heated debates in our modern age. On, on your phone or computer, there's this little file. It doesn't have any audio in it, and it's, a, it's just a video that's a couple of seconds long. But there's a furious debate going on. What do we call these little things? Some say GIF, some say GIF. Well, I settled the debate by finding out what the creator named his creation. I'll tell you afterward if you want to know which one it is. <laughs> The fact that God names the day, he names the night, the celestial objects and man, it implies total authority over all creation. When we think about the power of God, that he makes all things out of nothing, the miracle of miracles that no other being is capable of, that he does it freely and intimately. What a humbling truth. What a, a truth that brings us great hope. 
We're humbled in awe of God's awesome power, the God whose robe is the light, whose canopy is space. There's hardly a greater source of hope amid any troubles than the knowledge that the God who made the heavens cares for me and for you. The God who, according to Jesus, has numbered the very hairs on your head. Finally, the third attribute we'll briefly touch on from Genesis 1 is God's perfection. And this relates especially to the goodness of creation. Look again at verses 3 and 4. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. The goodness of God can refer to a sort of aesthetic goodness, like beauty that we can see, but it can also refer to moral goodness, the quality of being without sin. Both of those are certainly true of creation, but there's more to it than that. The light being good in Genesis 1 most directly refers to the fact that it has fulfilled God's purpose. The order that the earth is primed for in verse 2 comes about perfectly in verses 3 and 4 as God brings forth light and separates it from the darkness. Seven times throughout Genesis 1, God's creation is good, symbolizing complete order, beauty, sinlessness. I almost missed the fact when I studied the text that darkness must have been good too. God wasn't taming chaos here. Darkness is a creation of his. It's not simply the absence of light. And it's true that darkness can refer to evil or judgment, but at the dawn of moments of great revelation, God veils himself in darkness. Think of God on Mount Sinai. And he does so that his glorious revelation will shine forth all the more brightly. That's what we see here. And the darkness of night is also good for the creatures in the created order. It helps us rest. The coolness of the night is a sweet contrast to the heat of the day. Whatever God creates is good because he is good. And this is important to remember because at times we can be inclined to think of our creatureliness or the things of this earth as inherently bad. We think because a particular thing has been abused in a world of sin, that it's probably bad in of itself. Sometimes we think our bodies are bad. Well, we think, I don't need to take care of myself because I'll get a new one in eternity after all. Material things are not bad. God gives them to us. He expects us to steward them on his behalf. They're good before his glory. But on the other hand, we're reminded that material things are not the highest good. All creation is designed to draw us to worship God. Another aspect of the light that we don't always consider is how the light shines forth in verse 3. Think about the fact that the sun and celestial objects are created only later in Genesis 1. The source of light in the beginning, I and, and many theologians believe, is the own radiance of the glory of of God. It's a parallel to Revelation 22 where God is the light of his people on the new earth. Everything in Genesis 1 is perfect and complete according to God's design for that moment in time. In the end, God's design is that the same radiance of his glory from the beginning would shine forth through his people in full communion with him for all eternity. In this way, Genesis 1 foreshadows the salvation of God's people. 
Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. The same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The God who created in the beginning is the same God who makes us a new creation. But God doesn't ever leave the job half finished. Whatever he starts, he finishes. Just as God completely worked out to, his, to the precise detail all the order in Genesis chapter 1, so he works out his salvation in you. As Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So to conclude, do you know the light of God's creation in your own life? We read about the creation narrative. We read about truths of God from Scripture. But have you experienced by faith the light of Christ in your own soul? Maybe you have experienced it. Your eyes have been opened to His goodness by the power of the Spirit, the revelation of the Word. But you don't feel the light of Christ today. Most of the time when we feel His absence, it's because we forget that He is the one that world, history, and all creation is about. We lose sight of the main character in our own lives, in our own stories. And we feel distant from the Lord. But when we seriously meditate on these truths, when we think about the aseity or perpetuity of God, His eternal self-existence, His, His omnipotent power, His glorious, good perfection, when we think about those things, our hearts really should be drawn to worship. We may not feel the light shining in our, in our hearts, but when we meditate on those things by faith, our eyes will be opened. We will experience His glory. We'll see He is the main character in creation. And our only response is to worship Him. God delights in communicating Himself to you. As Edwards put it, the beauty of creation is only a shadow of God's infinite beauty and loveliness. May we delight in Him and I'll give you a moment to meditate on these truths before I close this in prayer. God, we thank you for your revelation and creation. We praise you for your eternal self-existence. You depend on no one. We are completely dependent on you, and that is good news. Help us to realize and live in light of our dependence on you. Draw us to worship you with all of our lives by the light of Christ and the life of his spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.